What's your name? Tony Gwynn Jr. How many years you played professional baseball? Fifteen. What's your current job? Uh, man, I got a do- bunch of hats. Broadcaster, analyst. We'll just leave it there. If I guess had- t- I guess TV host. If you had to take a guess of how many times in your life you've gone through a day in which somebody, nobody asked you about your dad or mentioned your dad at all, what would oh, be the number man. of times? Throughout my life? Yeah, throughout your entire life. Oh, I'd probably say about a thousand. About a thousand. And how many days you are you older you? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you I'm 37 years of age. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Tony Gwynn Jr. We will talk about what it's like growing up, the son of perhaps the greatest hitter of this generation, but also about his life, carving out a playing career within that shadow, how he honors his father to this day, and his life after baseball ended. Tony Gwynn Jr. next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Tony, thanks so much for joining me. This is no awesome. No problem. I'm definitely going to be that guy who talks about your dad, but I'm not going to only talk about your dad. All good. I'm but, used to it. But he he <laughs> was the first major leaguer who I interviewed. And because of that, I just thought it was going to be easy. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're not the first person to tell me that. My and dad, I was at the Daily Aztec, and yeah. he treated me like I was at the New York Times. I, I mean, that's kind of how my dad treated everybody. I think uh, he had this unique ability to make you feel as though you've known him for years, as if you grew up as childhood friends. Um, that's how he was really with everybody. Yeah, um, very special. So when I started this podcast, I didn't plan on making so much of it about fathers and sons, but as I look back at the different guests that I had, I had Reed Ryan last year during the baseball winter meetings, yeah. and obviously we talked about Nolan, um, Chris and Pat Vileka, and we talked about their dad and like yeah. their brothers, and Brian Holman, major league pitcher, his son David pitched for the Isotopes. And I just realized, like, just how much fathers and sons, it just became natural that this podcast has turned into a lot of father-son talk. So I'm glad that I can continue this with you. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the beauty about baseball is that um, for generations and generations and generations, it's been fathers teaching their sons a game that is special to them. And it's transferred Obviously, through different generations, whether it's the Boons, whether it's the Griffies, whether it's the Bonds. I mean, the list is really, really long in the game of baseball because um, it's a shared sport between – it has been a shared sport through history of a, a father-son. Um, and I think that's why you see so many kids, uh, whether they were former players or not, uh, end up playing this sport. Yeah, yeah. And even for those of us whose dads 
did not reach the major leagues. It's still our it's a love for the yeah, game. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. You were born in October of 82. Yep. Your dad made his major league debut in June of 82. How old were you? Do you recall when you could comprehend that, that my dad's different than most dads? 1989 is the first. I was seven. First time I could start to realize my dad was a little different. Like, go to school, people are talking about the Padre game, and they're talking about your dad. And, you know, prior to that age, it didn't. It just was going over my head. But uh, that year he happened to be going up against Will Clark to, like, the last day of the season for a batting title. And that conversation, that those conversations that would happen at school – is what kind of opened my eyes to, okay, maybe not everybody's dads, you know, are, are doing this, <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, I'd say about 89 is when it started to kind of hit me. Because like, he ended up winning on the very last at bat, uh, infield single. I just remember leaving the stadium that day and how many people were just so excited. They didn't win a pennant. They didn't, they, Giants were the ones going on to, to the playoffs. But it just there was just a, a, a different – feel about it that yeah. day i think people who just heard you laugh realized you have the exact same laugh as your dad. <laughs> <laughs> right? i've literally heard that we've been i've been here yesterday was my first day here i've probably heard it at least 12 times yeah. yesterday. um okay so your dad was naturally chatty you are now naturally chatty we'll find out when that began but let's go back further for your grandparents like does the entire gwyn family have just this outgoing great belly laugh and personality or where did your dad get it I think it was from uh, his mother, Vendela. Um, she was very much bubbly like that, um, more so than, than his father, Charles, was. Um, I think that's where he is. But to be honest, I think really him and his brother, Chris, really all three of them are unique uh, to that. I, I don't necessarily believe either of their parents were as bubbly as they are, but especially Chris and my father are, we're, we're like that. And um, you don't know how many times people thought my dad was from the South because of, of how he had this kind of like tang to his talk uh, along with that laugh. So um, I would I think I, I honestly, when, when you boil it down, it, it probably is a unique thing to him and his brother. Yeah. Whenever you'd go to the ballpark with your dad, who were the other kids that were around the ballpark that, that would hang er, out and what would you guys do? Early it was the Templetons. Uh, Gary II and, and Jerome, uh, they were there. The Bochies were there early on. The Pip Roberts, his son, was there. So it like it evolved over time. You know, I, I went from being your dad was there two decades. He was there for a long time, right? So I um, there were a bunch of different kids that came, and for a long time I was I just mixed in, and eventually I was like the oldest one mm-hmm. remaining. Like so, I went through two different Bochies. Greg, the older son. And then Brett, the younger son, who was younger than I was, you know, they, it just it kind of cycled through. The, the Hoffmans, I mean, they were little guys when I was, you know, around. And then as I left and went off to college, they became those kids. You know, that's kind of how the cycle goes. Yeah. Um, how much interaction did you have with the San Diego chicken? <laughs> I had one very specific encounter. My sister and I, uh, they do a routine where they bring the little chicks on. Uh-huh. And they like pee on the umpire. I I was one of those chicks okay. one day. So it was it was myself, my sister, and then maybe two other kids. Uh, and we're on the 
backside of, of home plate. So, you know, we're doing our little routine. And I remember it because my sister picked up the wrong leg. And it was like <laughs> my, my mom and dad laughed really hard at that for, like, months. I don't know how that would play nowadays, like having kids like pee on umpires. But it was my favorite part of watching. They the actually redid it last year. The Did chicken they? had his. Uh, it was either last year or the year before. It was like the the longest anniversary. One of the anniversaries he was here. He came and they had the kids do that exact routine. Uh, was your I take it your parents were watching? Well, my dad was on the field. Yeah. He was watching. Yeah. My mom. I mean, they had set it up so they made sure they were in their seats <laughs> yeah. when it happened for sure. Uh, let's talk about your mom. Because anytime there's a player who's a son of a major leaguer, like, yeah, it's fun. He goes to the ballpark and hangs out. But dad's gone at spring training. Like, yeah. mom's a single mom for a lot. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your mom and how she held the family together when dad's away at work. Um, I think if my dad was here, he'd tell you that his success can't happen without her. I mean, she was selfless from the standpoint is. Whatever her dreams and aspirations were, aside from being a mother and a, and a wife, uh, she was willing to put those aside so that my dad could be at the yard at 12.30, 1 o'clock at a 7 o'clock game and really um, have a one-track mind in terms of his focus um, in the game of baseball. And, and that's what my dad, although he was a great athlete, um, he outworked a lot of people. I mean, he had unbelievable hand-eye coordination, but it was the time he put in, and my mom allowed for him to do that without any, you know, reservation of, of leaving his kids behind. He, he was allowed to do that. And, you know, the same goes for in terms of having to raise us, because as you said, baseball wives who have children basically become mom and dad for uh, a significant part of the year. I mean, six months Seven months, if you're counting spring training, um, they're gone. In spring training, there is no coming back. <laughs> like they're, they're, You leave from San Diego, and he's there. And now as my dad got older, he would randomly drive back. But early on, that wasn't the case. He was there for a month. We'd get a chance to go out and visit him uh, for spring break, maybe, if we're lucky, and um, see him then. But, yeah, she, my mom is my mom's just one of the strongest individuals I know. By the way, Tony and I are – recording this podcast outdoors on a deck we got the coronado bridge to one side we got the bay around but every once in a while a helicopter might fly by but right. that's but that's okay we're in san diego so it's all good um the other thing that i remember reading about when i was a kid and, and i wonder how much memory you have of this is that i mean your dad was always the big proponent of video early early and like vhs right so was your mom like pressing record at home while the team's on the road and like the video Video editor, basically? Yeah, I mean, well, at first started, there was no video editor. I mean, my mom was the video editor. She would hit record. Uh, this is back in, I think, Betamax tapes, right? Mm -hmm. So no, no team has their own video. Like, you just show up, play, play the game, go home, right? So my mom was that. He was struggling one year, and he just like, I need you to, I need you to just record. I need to see what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So she would record, and at the time, it was just record the whole game. Mm -hmm. Now, as time went on, it got more sophisticated, just record the at-bat, turn the recorder off, things of that nature. But, uh, yeah, my mom was his video, uh, the, the video editor. She was the, the, the BP thrower. I mean, my mom was. She threw BP? She threw BP to him, yeah, during the offseason, for sure. Yeah, scout report on your mom's <laughs> BP? Like, get two Seavers? Uh, <laughs> apparently, it was good enough for him to get the work in he needed, so. You know, that's – but, yeah, like I said, my mom wore multiple hats. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, I was on YouTube the other day, and there was a story. I think you were about 10 years old, 
and the story was about you. And at one point, you're like laying down on the ground, and your dad says, "Come on, come over." Oh, here. this you is that Qualcomm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you got to do an interview, and you're like, "Ah, oh, your dad's like, you got to be a well-rounded ball player. You got to learn how to do your interviews." <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, man. Somebody actually sent me that that interview not too long ago. That's how I knew what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, my dad. Um, it was funny. He when he taught lessons like that, it was never like direct. Like it was kind of like on a whim, and those things stick out to me. Like, I remember laying on the ground, like, I'm not really ready to do nothing like this yet. Why are you doing this? But I ended up doing it. And, I mean, at that point is when I started to realize, even before, because even at this point, I didn't know I wanted to play baseball when I grew up. I, I liked the game a lot, and I enjoyed being around these big leaguers. But at, t- I think, 10 or what was it, 12, you said? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I was really thinking that far ahead, if I could see it that yeah. far ahead. But, um, I realized though, at that point that this was going to be a necessary evil at some point. Yeah. I would need to be comfortable. At the same time, how often at the end of the game you just want to go home and your dad's doing yet another interview and here's one more question from some reporter? Because all the reporters loved him because he was such a great right. interview. How often you were like, okay, can we go home now? There was times, but it was few because, like I said, I, because I was around it at an early age, I think I just had a, a, a an understanding that, this is who he was. This is, you know, what he had to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I, there was many days where my dad was like, I, I'm done today, guys. I'm, I'm going home. Yeah. Like, he would be in a bad mood. He wanted right. to go home. Just like everybody. But for the more than others, uh, a lot more than others, he sat in front of his locker and knew that was like a – he knew that was something he had to do. It was just like uh, having to go work on your game. He knew at the end of all this was done. I, I had my dad had some questions. When I talked to Reed Ryan last year, I remember asking him about when he started playing youth baseball and how he was treated on the field. And he told me that all the other players are great, but it was the parents. He said, like, he got heckled by parents more than anyone else. And that blew my mind. And I'm wondering what what kind of experience you had with people expecting you to be something. Um, you know what? To be honest, Josh, I could have been just totally oblivious to it. Um, I do remember as a nine-year-old, you know, playing with 11- and 12-year-olds, first time stepping out on the field, being told that, not being told, but having a coach assume that I was just going to go out and hit baseballs like my dad was, like, at nine. And um, it didn't bother me. It didn't make me feel any way. It was just like, okay, this this is, um, my name is the same. My dad's really good. This is what it's going to be. So I... It's one of those things I just embraced at an early age. Yeah, I was heckled, but I always embraced that. Like, especially as I got older, I, I felt really good about giving it back because I knew I could. <laughs> you know, I, had to, I was good enough, especially in you know high school, college, when when that's really going on. Even in the, at the at the minor league level, you know, I knew I could give it back. Yeah. At, and, and I'd be all right. And there's a famous time in Denver that we're going to get to later, <laughs> which is like the, like the greatest video of all time. We're going to save that. Um, so when you're in high school, you ended up going to San Diego State, just like your dad, just like your uncle. Was there ever a doubt, or was there any other options, any other thought about going somewhere else? To, uh, in terms of San Diego State? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was committed to go to Cal State Florida. Really? Yeah. I, 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 that was, I was committed. Uh, I sent my letter of intent, and this was in 2000, uh, beginning of 2000. So I probably committed in, in like, March. This is also 2000 is the second to last season my dad would play. 
And Coach Dietz, who was the head coach at San Diego State at the time, had told him many times before, but as of as of around around that time, that I'm holding on to this job for you. You know, when you're ready to retire, uh, it's yours. Now, my dad didn't know at, in 2000 how sure he was he wanted to retire. I mean, something he'd been doing is for all of his adult life. Um, I think it took him the rest of 2000 into the 2001 season because he didn't announce his, that he's retiring until the season got going. Um, and I remember him coming into my room. Um, at this point, it's probably before summer starts of 2000. Um, and he's like, you know, Coach Deeds is holding on to this job for me. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't have much time left to play. I know that. But I'm, I'm really considering it. And I don't even know if we had a conversation about him coaching me, me playing for him, but I think I thought about it immediately. And I, what ended up happening was Coach uh, Horton, uh, who is at Oregon now, he was the Cal, head coach at Cal State Fullerton. Um, it took me about two weeks. I thought about it, and at the end of the day, I was like, man, how cool would it be to, to be able to play for my dad? I've never, I've never been able to spend that kind of time with him in a calendar year because usually I'm in school, he's gone playing baseball, whatever it is. Um, it just got to the point where I was like, I think this is something I would love to do. So I got on the phone. I built up the courage to call. I mean, I'm 17 at yeah. this time. Like, you take notes. Okay, these, <laughs> these are my bullet points. Having like a real conversation <laughs> about changing my mind, it's, it's tough for a 17-year-old. But I got on the phone. And Coach Horton was so gracious. I mean, he, he understood what was what I was getting at. And he basically was like, hey, oh, I totally get it. If uh, it doesn't work out, it's an open door. So that just made it easy for me to make the transition. Now, I ended up because I ended up switching and I had already turned down San Diego State earlier, my scholarship was a lot smaller by the time I came <laughs> back around. But nevertheless, that's why how I ended up there. So your freshman year, was your dad's was that the transition year? Didn't he have like a transition year with He Deeds? was finishing so my freshman year so I enroll in school in two thousand, the baseball season doesn't start until two thousand one. Okay. So he is he had just finished or he's getting ready to finish uh his last season uh, at in two thousand one as I'm finishing my first season as a freshman. Okay. And um so he doesn't actually become a hitting coach because he, tran- he transitioned hitting coach, manager. So it was like a three-year transition there, really. What did you call him? Do you call him dad? Do you call him Coach Gwynn? Do you call him T? What would you call him? I think I called him dad. Um, I called him coach early because, you know, the last – my biggest fear was, especially once he became a head coach, was that – all of a sudden people are going to think I was on the field because he was the head coach. Now, granted, it was probably not that smart thinking considering I'd been there for two years and put up some pretty good numbers. But nevertheless, I didn't want him to have to deal with none of that. So early on I called him coach. Um, I always made sure I was doing what I was supposed to in practice. Even if that meant I had to bite my tongue doing something I didn't want to do, I did it because I didn't want him in that position. And I think by, by midseason I was calling him dad, though. How long do you think it took for your teammates, especially the freshmen, before they got over? This is Tony Gwynn who's coaching me, and, and, and I can get past that and just and this is just coach. I think for my roommates it was easier because they had been around them so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, they had 
gone to the house for dinners and things of that nature. For them, it was old hat. But I think for a lot of guys, I don't know if they ever got through it the first year. Maybe the older guys had a much easier time. Um, but I, I don't know that the freshmen ever really got over it the first year. Yeah. What, are, what are some of your just biggest, best memories of being at San Diego State, dad's coaching, whether it's um, whether it's a road trip or whether it's something on the field or whether it's – I remember the first – his our first game um, – his first managed game was at Arizona State. We're playing like Dustin Pedroia and Ethier. I mean, they had a squad. Um, I remember that very well. I remember, um, I remember going to Miami that year. They had Braun. They, I mean, we the places we went that year. It was like my dad wanted to meet. My dad came out. I don't think at that time he understood the college landscape. We were going after, like, some of the best teams in the country. And we didn't necessarily fare that well. Um, wasn't our better team. Actually, my that year, though, I got hot at the very end. And just having him around when I was swinging the bat that good, I mean, I ran it all. I think I got all the way up to 370 my, my, my junior year. And, you know, just the slow process to get there and having him there with me was, was nice. I remember at one point, I don't know why I said this to him, I ran into him, and uh, it was a year in which the team didn't do all that well. It just is like a joke. I was like, come on, Tony, when are we going to win? And he's like, I know, I know, they're going to get rid of me, they're going to fire me. He's like, i got to win next year. I'm like, come on, man, your name is on the stadium. Like, like they built the stadium because of you. Like, they're not going to get rid of you. But, but he, like, was is that real? Was he, It's real, man. Yeah. I mean, that's the same thing. I tell the story all the time about the Hall of Fame, like, he truly believed until he got the phone call. He was unsure that he was going in. Now, that's despite every reporter that he beat reporter he came across his last season telling him, well, you, come on, Tony, you can't possibly. That's You're shooing. Yeah. Like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. And I think <laughs> when you watch the video of him getting the phone call and all that emotion, that is him genuinely believing that there's a chance it might not happen. Mm-hmm. The other thing I remember him telling me was that, he went after the best players, and he signed a bunch of them, but then yep. they got drafted, and he kind of got devastated. You know, the team gets decimated because you're, you don't you're have anybody. Yeah. And what do you remember about just sort of how he was navigating that, that reality? I remember it being tough for him. Even, a, even our first year, like, my dad wanted to treat us like men. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest, their college kids ain't necessarily men yet. They don't know how to conduct themselves. So. Um, I think he had to bring it. I mean, you saw he, as the coaching staff started to change, I think that's how he addressed it. And everything he realized he had to be a little bit tougher than he wanted to be uh, in terms of that. So you saw that transition. You saw the recruiting style kind of change. Because he did. He went after the best guys, and he was getting them. But so was MLB. <laughs> and they pay more. <laughs> Major League Baseball was getting them, and they pay more. Um, and, as you know, the draft has changed a little bit yeah. now. So, you know, you could wait it out until mm-hmm. all the way up through the following year, and it was all good. Now, had that, had he been uh, a coach now in this, how the team rules have changed, he might have better success going after those guys because there's a time frame that's got to be done in. So, um, but, yeah, he, he had to he, – he knew he, there was an, uh, an advantage to being Tony Gwynn, and he used it. But the consequences of that is you get those guys they sign – what do you got? You're you're decimated. You're taking more walk-ons now because you you don't have time to go out and get those guys. So 
It was a learning curve for him, for sure. I want to talk to you a little bit more about just campus life at San Diego State. Feeling nostalgic because I went to the game the other day yeah. and parked across campus and walked by my freshman dorm. I think it's the only dorm that has not changed in the almost – 20-something years. And yeah. I lived, no, in, yeah, that, I lived that, at Olmeca. That's the okay, only one that yeah. hasn't changed. Yeah, El Conquistador <laughs> is not El Conquistador. They changed that now, and it looks all nice. they got flat screen TVs in the lunchroom and everything. It looks like the Taj Mahal. Like, and I'm glad <laughs> that, the, that the kids nowadays have nice things. Like, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not jealous. Not, right, but, jealous. But, like, I'm glad that they have nice things. It's no good. doubt. Uh, what were your favorite non-baseball things to do as a college student? I mean, shoot, like every other college student, I think weekends come. You like to uh, you like to have fun with your with your roommates and friends. I enjoyed that. Um, one of the things I enjoy, well, I, I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I look back on it. Um, the conditioning that we used to do, like I look back at the t- at that time, it was the, probably the best shape of my life. And I'm into fitness now, so um, I think back at like running along Montezuma, like. That is like an insane run. I cannot believe, as I sit here at the age of 37, cannot believe I did that. Like, willingly did it. And it, it's like I think back to that. I think about, because a lot of stuff was kind of new when I got there. Like that, that weight room that they have now that's, you know, now 20 years, almost 20 years old, was brand spanking new. Like my freshman year, we were in like a, a little hut that we had a weight room. And the following year, we moved into this beautiful facility with like a 90-yard track in there. And it was like, this is this is legit. And you started to see the benefits of, you know, my dad starting to come around, Steve Fish being there, and things just getting better. I was at the very infant stages of where San Diego State is now. And uh, some of the some of the restaurants, like you see, like uh, it's no longer there, but 4.0 Deli was there. Used to, I mean, we used to kill that place. They have a Trader Joe's on campus they, now. Now I do have a Trader Joe's. <laughs> they have like a wings and th- I mean, they got like a whole they got a juice bar, bar. A juice bar, and all of that. Me? You can use like your your your, your card, your your meal card that your parents. It is to. it is remarkable all the stuff they have. I haven't even been in the whole the basketball students facility has their own little little spot like. What, what? Like, that's not even heard of. The soccer field has lights. They didn't have lights when I was here. It's come a long way, man. It has. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite class? I had a poli-sci class that I really enjoyed. Okay. Um, I had a baseball class my freshman year, but that don't really count. But the poli- the poli-sci class so fun? Because it was, it, was, uh, it was free thinking. It was debate. You know, I, I, you know anybody who knows me, like, I, I enjoy a good debate. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that that's the part that I enjoyed the most about it. Yeah. Uh, draft day. Let's t- talk about going up to the 2003 draft. Uh, the Padres have the fourth overall pick. You're projected to go maybe late first, second, the worst third round. Obviously, there's a lot of talk of the Padres going to take Tony's right. kid. Right. Did Were you hoping one way or the other that another team would take you or that the Padres were? What was your mindset at the time? I mean, listen, I think – I had I had mixed emotions about it. Like, I knew that organization. They fit my criteria, right? They they weren't very good. I was going to get a chance to possibly move through the system. But I'd also been here my entire life. So would it be nice to and, – and granted, I knew there was going to be a journey before I got there anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I looked at some of the minor league places, and I was like, look, it's – 
I don't know any of these places anyway, so I, I might as well just get ready for it. So there was a part of me that was ready for it, but there was also a part of me that was kind of like, it would be nice to see what, what else is out there. And so I went through that process. As you said, it was late first I was hearing. I was hearing mid-first, anywhere from mid-first to third. And ultimately, I just remember my dad just kept telling me, ultimately, man, it doesn't matter. You don't make any real money until you get to the big leagues anyway. So the faster you can get on the field and do your thing, the quicker you have a chance to get there. That's what he was really focused. He, he wasn't even thinking. He was trying to avoid a, the signing bonus conversation altogether. He knew it was inevitable, but he wanted me to focus. He didn't want me, like, playing around, holding out. Wherever you get drafted, you just need to go play. Just kept saying that. So draft day, uh, set the scene. Who's there? Where are you at? It's not on TV back then. No. You're just watching the Internet, I would guess, on a computer. I'm at my mom and dad's house. It's just my mom because my dad's gone playing. Um, got my flat. I got my laptop open. Um, and I'm following along, but I'm not really following along. Like, I truly didn't believe I was going to go in the first round, so I really didn't. I paid attention like 28 around there, you know. Um, because, you know, the teams that were slotted in the late, I, I, there was not a need there. I, I, well, at least I hadn't talked to none of those teams either. So I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be there. Now, that round went, and second round I, I started paying a lot more attention because I knew it was highly unlikely because I talked to Milwaukee the most. Obviously, my Uncle Chris, was who was one of the lead scouts at that time for the Pods, was in my ear about it. So I knew uh, going in that day. So we get past the first round. I get a call from my Uncle Chris, and he's like, uh, we're taking you if, if you're there. We're going to take you right, I think it was fifth or sixth, something like around there. Or it was fourth. It was fourth. Um, I'm like, all right. So, you know, as I'm watching, Milwaukee comes up. I see my name go across. And I didn't really have a reaction. It was just like, okay, this no team fits the criteria. And then I start processing it. I didn't even put put it together that Prince was on the field on the team at the time. Not that we knew each other at all at that point, but didn't even put it together. Uh, I knew Ricky because we had try we had been on the USA. We had, at least I went to the tryout for the USA team. He was there. We kind of met then, um, but it was I was ready. Like it was like cool. Let's let's make this. How happen. long from draft day until you report to the Beloit Snappers? I reported like the first week of, of end of June. Excuse me, end of June. Um, so it was about. Two and a half weeks. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, your team is loaded. Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks. Did you and Prince ever talk about both of our dads were in the major leagues, sharing stories back and forth, or was it just like this understanding of, you know, kind of like a nod of, of you know. It, it wasn't really talked about our dads. It was more so the stuff we experienced while with our dads. You know what I'm saying? Like, we probably talked about being at the field and the players we got to grow up around more so than we talked about our dads. Um, It's funny, it's how I even met Prince. I walk in that first day in Beloit. I don't know anybody, obviously. They send me to the manager, uh, Don Don Money at the time. And Prince has happened to be in the office. Now, I think him and Don had had some words the other day, and they were talking it out. And they were all cool because I walked in. It seemed like everybody was, was in a good place. I introduced myself to Don. Don introduced himself to me. I introduced, he, then he introduces me to Prince. And Prince, out of the blue, goes, you got a place to stay yet, man? And it's like, nah. He's like, you want to stay with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. 
I mean, it made sense. I was like, all right, cool. And, you know, from there. Who was the sloppy roommate? Who was the neat freak? It It worked because we were both neat freaks. When we were single, we were both neat freaks for sure. Like, neither of us liked to be in a dirty place. Dishes were always done. If you did a dish, you, you did your own dish. Like, in... Thing, that's we were we kind of had the same interests, so things were it was an easy. Me and him were going to get along from the moment we we met. Yeah. So the Brewers back then, as you mentioned, were not good, but they had a lot of good players in the minor leagues. Could you feel the, the different places? About- not the first year, because okay. remember, I'm I'm going straight from San Diego State to Beloit, so right. no spring training. I don't get a chance to see none of these other dudes and, and who they are. All I know is we got a, the squad I was on was legit. I mean. There was some guy, Dennis Serfate, Manny Parra, uh, Ricky, as you mentioned. I mean, there was this, this team was loaded. It was loaded. And um, I would end up realizing it only when I went to spring training for the first time. And the interesting thing is you would think after watching my dad for 20 years, I would have known how to really prepare, like what it took to get ready for a spring training. I had no idea. No idea. It took me probably took me a few years before – I figured out what I was supposed to be doing during the off season and how to get ready during an off season. So how much based on what you just said I was gonna ask you about two thousand four, they jumped you from low A to double A. That's Oof. your first year in Pro Bowl, first full season of Pro Bowl. That's one hell of a jump. Plus double A was Huntsville, Southern League, ball it was, does it carry. That is a pitcher's league. The lead was the league was as good as it could get too. And at least statistically, it looked like it was a tough season. Oh, my God. It was the, the toughest baseball season of my entire life at that point. I did not know how. I never, I've never felt like this. Never dealt with this. I mean, seeing a two in front of any number that I had with a bat in my hand was mind-blowing. And that bats, you know, even though I was struggling, they ran me out there every day. I had like 600-something at bats or plate appearances that year. Um, but it was as hard as and I was and I was living by myself like the apartment situation in Huntsville at that time I mean there wasn't no like three bedrooms anywhere so you know you had to double up Prince and Ricky went together I didn't know anybody else so I got a place by myself and then man living by yourself for the first time I think I was I think I was 21 I was not ready for that yeah um, you know, having roommates in college and roommates everywhere other than other place I live was my house where there was other people. So that was a rough season. I, I learned a lot, though. I really did. The, the bus trips in that league are really hard, too, right? Yeah, that first one to Jacksonville, man. I, the, the first, the, I mean, the year before, let me give you a quick story. Last trip of the season, Dayton, is like really my first long bus ride. I got there lucky because they're all short ones. We're going to, to Dayton, Ohio. The air-conditioned brakes. We open the, the center vent, starts raining. So we're in there with no air condition. Just, we're in just basically a, a, a zip-locked bus, basically. Um, it, was most, it was the most horrendous trip I've ever been on a bus. Yeah. But anyway, fast forward, Sa- Southern League, yes, traveling was horrible. You go back to the Southern League. Yes. What changed the second year at Huntsville? It started to click for me. I, I started to figure out who I was as a hitter. Because that's all that was. That was the issue for me. Defense was that was easy. That was the thing that came most natural to me. I was gifted there. But um, what happened was, I worked on some things with my father that year. Um, 
just to try to simplify my swing. And took a little bit, but once we got going to season, things started to click. I started hitting balls hard. I started to learn how to pull the ball for the first time. Um, I'll never forget Frank Krimblis the year before had – we were all struggling for a little bit. Now, Prince of Riggy figured it out like the last month and a half, but we were all pretty bad first half of the season. So he had us doing all kinds of weird stuff that I look back on now, there was a, a purpose behind it. Like It's almost like you got to get somebody to exaggerate the exact opposite way you're going about it so that you can kind of get to some middle ground. And I think, I mean – for Prince, I remember him having him. He had me and Prince both literally chopping at the baseball. He was trying to get the loop out of our swing. And at that time, that was we didn't, you know, we didn't have all the technology we had now. That was a way to get a guy to do it. And it worked. Prince figured it out. I started to figure out the following year. And, you know, things started kind of taking off from there. Was, was there ever a time, look, like you said, you worked with your dad. Your dad's, your dad's amazing. Um, he knows your swing better than anyone. Was there ever a time that a hitting coach was – was there any, any friction that your dad's working nah. on this and maybe a hitting coach has got some other idea? My dad would never let it happen. He was very um, – he, he, he thought about that a lot. Like he wasn't going to step on anybody's toes. So our conversations were our conversations. I had to find a way because I knew he knew what he was talking about. And so I had to find a way to whatever – whoever my hitting coach was, was that I had – take things that he that were different and see if they worked and applied to me mm-hmm. and figuring out a way to apply it to me. And that took, that takes some learning how to do it. Eventually I was able to learn how to do it, but uh, it took a little bit of time. But, no, he, he made sure that that wasn't ever going to be the case. I was looking at the different teams that you played for, Beloit, Huntsville, Nashville, and this is before Nashville's new beautiful ballpark. You, <laughs> I mean, talk about some of the oldest ballparks. Herschel Greer is nearly condemned. The one place that would have been all right was the place they skipped us. Like, it was, like, in California. It would have been closed. They just said, ah, nope, go on, go on past that because they were having problems because that was, at that time, and it's still the same way, they had the, that wind would blow out, and guys were coming with having boosted home run numbers. And, and, and in the same sense where swings had taken a step back um, when they got to the next place they went to. So they just completely skipped Prince, myself, and Ricky, all to that next level. So, yeah, I tell people I played in the, the by far the toughest minor league circuit in our own organization than anybody in the country at the time. Yeah, yeah, the the, uh, the guitar scoreboard. I mean, black mold. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on in Nashville. That's why by the time I got to you, got to you guys in Albert, I was like, <laughs> this is like a resort compared to the places I've been at. Let's talk about your major league debut. How do you find out that you're going to the major leagues for the first time? I missed the first call. Uh, Frank Krimblis, uh is calling my phone. Overslept, or I just didn't hear the first one. I was asleep. I got up, calling back. He doesn't even try to play any games. Hey, man, get ready. You got to go to big leagues. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I wake my wife. I wake my fiance up at the time. Now my wife. Uh, I call my mom. Call my dad, and they're pumped. So. Get on a plane, and I head to Arizona. Play the Diamondbacks. Yes, play the Diamondbacks. What about your debut, do you remember? Uh, I remember feeling like I couldn't feel my legs in the box. I'm facing Brandon Webb, who at the time was one of the best pitchers in the league. Um, but I hit a 
I hit a missile to first base that Connor Jackson scooped up, stepped on first base. But uh, I definitely remember it. Your first my dad, my dad, who hates flying, drove from San Diego to Arizona just to see one at bat, and then drove back. <laughs> drove back. Your first hit came a few days later. It was the exact same day as your dad got his first major league hit, 24 years apart. Both of them were doubles. Yeah, both of them were doubles. Baseball's uh, just – It's crazy. Right? Kruko is up in the in the seats uh, or up in doing the game. Um, and, you know, we'd see later on that there would be a bunch of things that are that were connected in ways that, that are just different. But facing uh, Brian Wilson – before he was the closer, before he had the long the beard, beard yeah. um, and that was—I mean—that was—that was cool. It was a boost of confidence. I started—I swung the bat good my first time up. Was there any sense of I'm vindicated? I made it. No, at that point I knew I was going to make it. Like, okay. I after I got off to the star I got off to at year in AAA, the everything the light just kind of went on. Like, I was surrounded by some good coaches. Uh, and they just had the right – everything just started to fall into place. Like, I was getting stronger. I was more confident in my swing, things of that nature. Let's talk about the 2007 baseball season, in particular the final week of the season. Yeah. Your team, the Brewers, got eliminated. I think it was the Friday night of the final weekend. And the Padres are chasing a playoff berth. And they are one victory away from going to the playoffs. And they're in the ninth inning. They have a lead. Trevor Hoffman's on the mound. He's got two outs. He's got a one-run lead. There's one on, and you're at the plate. One out, and the Padres go to the playoffs. First, set the scene with your relationship with Trevor Hoffman as a kid. Man, uh, he was probably my go-to as a, as a kid. He was there longest. You got to remember, like, I had a lot of go-tos there at the time, but he was the most consistent from 90 whenever till my dad retired. Um and we was tight. Like, Trevor, we were tight enough to where I remember time being a rebellious 16-year-old high schooler coming in with a, a gray and black uh, L.A. hat just because I liked the color, you know. And he was so mad. He made, me t- he made me take the hat off. He was pissed. Like, first time he ever really pissed at me. Um, like, we were that close. So, um, on the flip side of that, I also watch him pitch – more times that I could remember to count. So I, I, I had that advantage. Like, I didn't need to look at a scouting report. I 100% knew what he was going to do in that situation. From what I've read, he was more nervous than you were in that situation. Uh, if it sounds like it, right? That's yeah. I've, I've read the same things you have. And you got to remember. There, maybe not not nervous, but maybe just like more. It was just He was aware. Un- aware was, of what, yeah. yeah. He was, here's, here's the backdrop of that. That season, um... I had a shot uh, to be the everyday guy. They ended up moving Billy Hall, uh, the, who was a utility guy, but played mainly third, who was a tremendous offensive player. They moved him to center with hopes that that could kind of pacify what we had going on in the outfield. And so I didn't really get a shot. So I was a little – that year was kind of an up-and-down year. I was trying to get over, you know, being upset in my mind. And uh, I was trying to salvage the year. I was hitting like 250-something in the bats I had, and I was just trying to – I wanted another hit. And Trevor was standing in the way of that hit. And, you know, it was 
it was a cool moment. He had pit, Lance Nix hit before me. He had thrown like four straight changeups. I'm like, I'm watching. I'm watching him as that at battle unfolds. Is like he's gonna go back to. He's gonna do something along those lines. Now I didn't think he would end up throwing. I think it was eight straight changeups. Eventually, the last one I would get to, but I knew it was gonna be a heavy changeup. I might get a heater in there somewhere. I, my plan was to stay on that heater, and if I got it, hit it hard somewhere. And you did triple. I got the trip. I got a changeup, and because I was thinking that way, even though I was fooled a little bit. They will keep it fair down the line, and uh, I had a rough offseason that year in San Diego, I'll tell you that. Game went extra innings, Brewers win it, Padres can still clinch the next day. They don't. They play game 163 against the Rockies. They lose that. They don't go to the playoffs. No. A few days before that game, you asked the then Padres owner John Moore or something. <laughs> I asked him for a ride home. I asked him for a flight home. And uh, on his private plane. On his private plane. Remember, this is the day before I actually get the hit. I, we had already settled this before the series started. Uh, so let's just say it was awkward going home. I tried to fall asleep as fast as I could. You sit in the back. Do you remember? I did. You sat in the back. I, I and sat in the front. I sat in the back, away from uh, Becky and John Moore's at the time. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was awkward flying in, knowing that they had to go to Colorado now. Uh, to try to win a one game. There couldn't have been anybody pulling harder for him than I was, though. Because right. <laughs> I had to live. I had to live in Mission Beach that year, so I was. I wanted to be happy. And, and your family was really close with the Moors, right? Yes, yes. They, um, they, they, they brought my, they took a liking to my mom and dad early, and they were tight. They're still tight to this day. Yeah. 2009. You're back at AAA with the Brewers, May 21st. How do you find out you're traded to the Padres? <laughs> my dad. Your dad. My dad. Uh, listen, th- that year was rough because I came in the spring with a shoulder injury. They not they uh, took me off the roster, so I was in AAA. Like I was, I was work. I, I had to work to get back to the big leagues. Uh, fortunately, Sandy Guerrero, who was the hitting coach at the time in Milwaukee, got me right. He got me right probably the best I swung a bat uh, that year. And we're in Portland, one of my favorite places. The irony is, is that I sat next to Will, Will Venables, wife now, girlfriend at the time on the flight. I had no idea. We're just having a time conversation about baseball. She said, oh, yeah, you're going to, you guys are going to face Portland. I was like, yeah. She's, you know, my boyfriend plays there, blah, blah, blah. The very next day I'm up at breakfast. Uh, I'm eating with uh, Jason Bourgeois. We're, we're sitting there having breakfast. Don Money is maybe a table to the right of us having uh, breakfast with one of the coaches. And uh, you, By the way, were you eating at that famous breakfast place in Portland that everyone in the PCL still talks about? No, this was a hotel, hotel? I believe. Okay, it was just a hotel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to get, it, get them to the no. Um, funny, because I wanted to play in Portland. It was turf field. Every, the year before I went, my hamstring was messed up, so I didn't get a chance to go. So I was happy. Like, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Portland. I felt like last time, the time I did get to play there, I swung the bat. Well, so this is all good thoughts going into this. We're having breakfast. My phone rings. My dad's like, you sitting down? I was like, yeah. What's going on? He's like, and his voice got real high pitched. You know how it goes. He's like, you've been traded to the Padres. And so uh, I'm like. I've never been traded before. I, I don't know if he's supposed to be telling me this. If 
the all kinds of things start going through my head. Can they like go back on the deal because you're telling me this and I gotta play it like I don't know? Like I'm like so I'm kind of nervous. And, and you know, so he finishes telling me this. He doesn't know all the details. You just know they traded for you today. Your uncle Chris called and told me. Uh, so now I'm telling you. So we get off the phone. I said, like, "All right, Don's over here. I'll wait to hear from my coach to see what happens." Hang on the phone. Like not within maybe three minutes, Don's phone rings. Uh, I think it's Gord Ash telling him, "Hey, we traded Tony. Have them back up. Got to be in San Diego." So he calls me over to his table, and I'm like, I'm freaking out because I'm like, I gotta pretend like I don't know. So I gotta make sure I I keep my face right, you know. So he tells me I pretend like, oh really? All right. So. Uh, I pack my stuff, I get out, I'm on a flight, my wife's packing up the place in Nashville with our two children, I'm headed to San Diego. You played that night, right? I, I pinch hit that, and I walk in the games in like the second inning, so I'm like introducing myself to Buddy and guys on the team as I, as I walk in, and um, I end up getting a pinch hit off of no other than Brian Wilson. I walk, walk, score the game when you score run. Score the game when you run, yeah. What do you recall about just the response of the crowd when they entered, when they said now it, batting it Tony was love Wayne. yeah it was love i mean from the moment i came on the odd deck circle you know you got the people close they're talking to you you know telling how excited they are to have you and then i came up and yeah it was it was a cool reception and to be able to, to score the game when it run the first night there pretty cool just how surreal was it at that point you know your dad's statue is out there in center field and you know, everywhere we walk around this hotel, there's someone wearing a Gwyn jersey. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just saw a couple of them uh, before we started. Uh, and now here you are. Now you get to play in San Diego. Yeah, no, it's, it was super surreal. Like, um, seeing, seeing, just being in a Padre uniform. Like, I grew up, I feel like I, this is a place I grew, I grew up. So, um, of course it was surreal. Like, it took me a little bit to, like, for it to be normal, like I was walk, getting to the park, like I was sleeping in my own bed, like in San Diego, like in, in my own place, driving to the yard. Like I remember the drives with my father from home to the yard. So now I'm making that different, a little bit different drive, different mm-hmm. direction, but I'm making that drive to the ballpark in my hometown. It was, it took about a month and a half before it like settled in. Like okay, this is baseball again. Any other? Just best memories of a of a play, of a game, of a moment, of your two years with the Padres. That nine, that oh nine year, ten wasn't a surprise to 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 us because I think we finished second half of the season better than everybody. Like we had, we made the trade with Peeve. You had Clayton Richard come over. You had some pieces come over that were good, um, and so and Buddy, Buddy is is my all time favorite manager. I mean, he just has a unique ability to keep positive but be able to coach you at the same time and he's honest um so the 09 that year 10 getting some 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 gold glove votes as a basically a fourth outfielder uh was 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 pretty legit um we had a good team we had good chemistry being around david Eckstein, uh your Tori alba um, we had Miguel Tejada for, I mean, ha- being around those guys was legit. Like Mike Adams. I mean, I talk about that team a lot because we were good. I mean, the Giants, they ended up winning it, but we would get, we gave, they, we were beating up on them all season long. Yeah. 
with all that said, when the time comes to the end of your time with the Padres, how emotional is that? I don't know. I was bitter. I was definitely bitter, especially how it ended up unfolding, right? Because um, Kevin Towers bring, brings me in. He gets fired in 10. Jed Hoyer takes over. I struggle. You know, 10 was a tough year. My, that was in the in beginning of August of that year, I found out my dad has cancer. Like, it was just a rough year. Um, but the crazy part was, the, the part that made me bitter was, like, what? I think it was maybe the very next year, Jed Oyer's out. He's off to Chicago. And it's like, man, you didn't even, you didn't, you didn't even stay there to, to make the rest of the decisions you were making at the time. But, you know, that's how it goes. But eventually I got over it, and it actually fueled me the very next year. Uh, where I got to play for a team that I consider one of the most historic franchises in history of baseball other than the Yankees. Yeah, that's the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, so I alluded to this earlier. The, the best part about this story is that people didn't even really know this happened until two years later because this happened in 2011, and the video surfaced in 2013. Right. You're, right. you're playing for the Dodgers. It's late in the game. You're in left field, and there's a heckler at Coors Field, and he's heckling you. And rather than turn around... You just reached your glove hand behind your back, near your butt, and every time that he talked, you moved your glove as if it's a mouth moving. He was talking, you know what? So it just kind of lined up. And um, the, the backstory behind that is the day before Matt Kemp got thrown out by uh, by Barrett, um, and we came out the next day during BP, and he said something along the lines of, "Man, I can't be getting thrown out, man." It's, I got I got to chill. I said, you know what, man? This is what we're gonna do today. We're not gonna respond to anybody or anything today, other than teammates. Like, so including fans. Like, so no matter what, we ain't responding. But this, so the game starts, and this guy is just going on. By like the second inning, he clearly was having too much fun. He was having way too much. So he's just wearing me out, like, and wearing me out for no reason. I mean, I'm actually having a pretty decent game that day. Um, <laughs> And at some point, they made a pitch and change, and I remember walking over to him. I was like, this dude is, is really getting on my nerves. But I'm going to keep my word. So the whole time from that point on, I'm trying to figure out how can I get at him without acknowledging him. And I don't know how it came to me, but it came to me. It's like, this dude's talking a lot. Of I was like, you know what, that's the, that's the perfect thing. So, and now it, was, so now it was just a matter of me trying to line up him talking with my glove. <laughs> It took me a little bit to, figure, to to get the rhythm of it, but once I got it, and then uh, I think uh, originally I think he thought they, everybody was laughing at me. But then I think as, as he started to talk more, I think it dawned on him that, oh, they're not laughing at that him. They're laughing at me. Yeah. And you can hear it kind of kind of quiet down as they let that play on. He kind of he kind of lets it go. Yeah, the crowd turned on him, <laughs> and they totally rallied around you. You know, from that point on, every time I went to Colorado, somebody was there that was there that night. And let me know how cool it was every time. <laughs> Had you ever done anything similar to that at all to a heckler? Nope. I mean, I was pretty good at talking, talking trash. Mm-hmm. Like, like it start, I remember it started in college, and, and lost, we were at UNLV, and these dudes in center field, it was a chain-link fence. So they're back there. They got their lawn chairs, and they are just giving me the business. The whole, and so at that point, I was much more in tune with, like, having that type of dialect. And... And from that point on, it was like an art to me. Like, I, I always admired guys like Gary Payton and things like that who could talk trash and get you out of your game. But, of course, they're not playing. So it's just me just trying to one-up you on whatever you're saying. 
That's awesome. I love it. Uh, so you joined the Albuquerque Isotopes, the Dodgers AAA team, and uh, got to spend the 2013 season with you. When, when you've spent as much time in the major leagues and you're back in the minor leagues, are you aware how, like, other people kind of look at you? Okay, how's he going to react? Is he going to be the salty vet? Is, you know what I mean? Do you, like, consciously think this is the way that I'm going to present myself to, to the people around? Yeah, because when you get to AAA at a young age, you see all different variations of that attitude. And I just remember being there in 06, like – 06 and maybe going back down in 07 as a 24-year-old, I'm thinking to myself, like, I hope I'm never this bitter. Like, I don't want to treat guys like this just because I'm here. Like, no, none of us are making the decision to be here. It's, 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 the organization has to make that decision. we got to abide by it. And I, I didn't want to ever be that guy. I'm going to tell you my favorite story about you from that season. I don't want to embarrass you too much, but uh, but we're checking into a hotel. It was either Omaha or Memphis, and it was one of those, like, we get in, and it's just like everyone just bum rushes the front desk because they got the keys all out and the names all out, and everyone's like elbowing, jostling, let me get my key, let me get upstairs because the two minutes it's going to take is going to be gonna <laughs> the most important two minutes of my life. So as all the players are doing that, Tony Gwynn Jr. looks in, and he finds the key for the manager, Lorenzo Bundy, and he says, "Low." and hands the key to Lowe, and he finds Franklin Stubbs, the hitting coach's key, and he makes sure that Stubby gets his room key, and then you got yours. That, I mean, that's how I was raised, man. And, and to be honest, that's how I was raised in the game. Like, when you, when, especially at that point, we didn't have, like, a super young team. These dudes, some of these dudes had been in, in AAA before, and sometimes you get jaded by being there, and... You forget the you forget the the I don't want to call them rules, but you forget the etiquette that that is supposed to happen. A manager who sits in the front of the bus probably you know he, that he's supposed to get his key first, and even if he doesn't get it first, like he should be one of the first to get it. Same with your hidden coach. Same with honestly the medical staff if if they're not the ones who are doing also slash travel uh, right. <laughs> travel secretary. Um, that's just common courtesy. Like uh, Adam, my, my teammate, former teammate of mine, Adam Heather, Adam Heather used to say it all the time, hurrying up to wait. It's like the people who get off in the plane who are 30 rows back are rushing to the front. Those things, like, those things bother me. So I'm going to always try to take care of the people who, who should be shown that respect. My second favorite story of you from that year is I remember we were talking one time about, like, the best catches that you'd ever made in your career, and I asked if you'd ever robbed a home run. And you said no. And I said, do me a favor. If you ever do, don't play it cool. Like, show, show the ball so that I can call it correctly. And you did at the top of the hills, the day game. <laughs> yep. I still have that photo. Somebody, It was in the paper the following day. So somebody cut it out, sent it to me. Um, honestly, that's generally how all my plays went. I wasn't a dude that I'd probably show more emotions on base paths, getting hits that I did defensively. I, I genuinely felt like I needed to make most plays that were out there, and I felt like I did that for the most part. The thing about Albuquerque that's different is that there's a hill in center field. Yes. What yes. was your um, – describe the evolution of your relationship with the hill in center field. It was, it was hate-love. It was hate-love. My first experience was actually my junior year at San Diego State, falling on that, on that very same hill. So from that point on, like, I knew – 
It'd be a while before I got back there after that junior season. But once I got back there, I was not going to lose to that hill ever again. Like that was, I, I remember going out there the very first day I got there. Like I'm taking fly balls on this hill. I'm feel, I'm going to learn how to run up this hill properly to make the play. And you know, like everything, when you get a, when it becomes your home home stadium, you start to make you start to adapt to it. Now, if you're coming in as a visitor, you you know, I don't care how much work you get in in those three four days. You're not going to be ready for it in a game action. My favorite part about Visitors BP is the number of relief pitchers that stand at the top of the hill, and they just want someone to throw them the ball. They don't want to run up the hill to make a catch. They want to stand at the no. top. And they, they, they want to pretend like it's level, yeah. and they just stand on the warning track and try yeah. to make the yeah. play. Yeah. Can't do it that way. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more baseball and your dad, but first I want to talk about your sister because she is a singer and, and a very good singer. Yeah. Um, where does the music gene come from in the Gwynn family? My mom, my aunties, my grandmother, um, on my mom's side. Um, they're the ones that I know who sang in the church and, and things of that nature. And I think uh, my, 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 my daughter is just gifted. What's up, Ryan? <laughs> I'll holler you a little bit. Uh, my, my, my sister was just blessed with a, a good voice. She, at a very young age, she wanted to do it. She was singing in church, singing in at Qualcomm for national anthems. Did she really? Yeah, yeah. She did that a few times. She's just she's just always been blessed with a, with a with a very good voice. So both you and your sister both work in industries where if you have a good day, people know, but if you have a bad day, people know. No doubt. How much have you been able to bond with your sister over pursuing something that's in the public spotlight? I think she thinks of it much like I do. It's like this is what we grew up in, so we don't really – know any different right i think the spotlight was on us from the time we became you know or we were mingling with society the time we started school spotlight was on us uh how we conducted ourselves what kind of students we were um what kind of competitors we were once we were on in a sports environment it's just been it's been secondary to i mean it's been something that's kind of like like i said putting on your pants yeah so you mentioned earlier about when your dad was first diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Um, describe some of your emotions as as he gets the diagnosis and then it went away and then it came back and sort of the, the evolution of all that. Uh, it's scary. I think um, in 2010, I mean, it's nine years ago. It's not that far. Um, we had learned a lot about cancer at that point. So you knew what the end result could be. and. Immediately, I don't care who you are, when you first find out somebody close to you has it, that's the first thing that crosses your mind is the, the, the expiration date that, that it has on it for, for most people. Um, so that, was, uh, that took a while for me to deal with. Like literally from the time I found out, uh, it wasn't maybe like two weeks later I break my hamate. So like I, there's just a lot of downtime to think about it, and I, I never really got right until that off season, honestly. And then I was able to kind of deal with it. He's going through his treatments, feeling better. Um, but going through that cycle, you know, from 10 to 14, it was just it was rough, man. It was real rough watching him go from the most jovial person, uh, big smile to his face just completely changing, being deformed almost. Uh, because of the the tumor, um, that was tough. Seeing him uh, not in that happy mood was tough. So it was lip cancer, and your dad dipped. 
Um, how much remorse do you think he felt? He felt a lot. He felt a lot. I think, uh, I think he beat himself up about it because it was stuff that my mom had been on him for a, for a long time about. And it wasn't that he didn't try to. It was, it's an addiction, you know what I'm saying? So it, it's a little bit harder than, hey, man, you stop it, and you just stop. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And um, I think eventually that's, that, that beat him up. Uh, I think he, he didn't – I don't know if he forgave himself for that. You don't have to answer this, but the, how did you find out that, that he had passed on? Oh, man. We, um, we flew into Atlanta. The, the Heat or Spurs had just beat the Pacers, I think, or beat the, beat the Heat. I had watched a game with Jimmy Rollins uh, at, a, at a steakhouse. Um, I was laying in bed. It was Atlanta time. It was four, 3, 4 in the morning. And my mom's brother, uh, Clay, called me and was like, I, as soon as I answered, I could hear his voice. I just knew it was, was happening. And immediately when I heard the words, uh, I just went numb. Um, packed up, got to the airport. You know, it was early in the morning, so everybody was asleep. Nobody, I, I had to let certain people Philly know, and they let the team know later on. Jimmy hit me up like as I was going. He's like, "Do you, you know?" He offered to fly me home privately, and I was like, "Man, don't worry about it." I was just numb, and like, I get to Phoenix, which was my first stop, and the news breaks on the TV, and that was tough. Like, seeing it up on ESPN in the airport probably was the toughest point of that day for me. Like, because at that point I was just numb. Like, a lot of thoughts going through my head, and then I happened to peek my head over and I see see him in his stance and they're breaking the news on ESPN that was that was hard would you that day were you like I just want to sit in the corner so people don't see me and put my let me put a hat down do I do I do you conscious of like I don't want to be noticed right now uh, I didn't want to be noticed but I, I wasn't doing anything to hide from it um, when I got on the plane to San Diego at that point because it was like an hour and a half delay I think one of the flight attendants recognized what was going on. Like she saw my eyes, uh, she saw how I was feeling. She could feel it. I think. I think she might have caught wind of what it was. She knew who I was. She didn't say anything, but she just kind of showed me to my seat, asked me if I need anything, and that was it. I was I was really thinking about my mom at that point because I know how tight her and my dad were, and how much you know she pretty much was. I was gone playing, so she was the one shouldering the load for a lot of this, getting him to the hospital through his treatments, and I was worried about her. I really was. If I remember correctly, there was a private memorial on campus. Yes. And there was, and then there was the public one, right? Yes. What are what are some of the just like snapshots or moments that that still resonate to this day? There was a lot of people there. I mean, there were people there that I didn't even know until later that were there. Like Barry Bonds was there. I mean, there was a lot of guys there. Um, it was a good ceremony. My mom's brother did a fantastic job of changing the mood into some laughter, some stories about my dad. Um, I just remember the outpour of, of people that were there for the private ceremony. By the time the public one came, I was already back in Philly. And um, to see the public memorial from a distance was those type of things made 
it a little bit easier, helped get through the process, like seeing the love. Because it didn't stop there. That, that literally went on, and it's, it's still going on, really. I, I, people pull me aside all the time that may or may not have ever met my dad, but always want to talk about the impact he had on them, whether they had met him or whether it was just through him being him. Yeah. I remember the day the news broke, the Isotopes had a day game. And I remember hearing it as I'm preparing, and I remember just going like, "You got to be kidding me! Like, I'm not a member of the Gwynn family. I'm not going to pretend like I, you know, that that I that I know them more than I do." But like I said, man, he treated me like I was like I was from the New York Times. That's, when I was a college student. That's know? how you know the impact he had was because anybody who came in contact with him, to a man or woman, all had the same feeling when they heard the news, like the same gut feeling that you have that's the same feeling everybody had i think that's how it's all been explained to me yeah and i remember at some point it was like late in the game and it was a blowout so what do you do when it's late in the game you know you talk about something else other than the game right <laughs> right you have to <laughs> right especially when you're doing nine inning solo and so it was around the sixth or seventh inning and so you know this there's no out-of-town scoreboard when it's that mo- so you talk about what happened and it's tony and i remember I remember I, I, I had to go silent for like 30 seconds or else I was going to start bawling right. on the air. Right. <laughs> so, 100%. So, I, at one point, the, the, engineer, the engineer might have even said, Josh, are you still there? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm just trying to not Get cry. myself together. <laughs> I got three more innings to go. I'm trying I can not relate. to cry. I can relate. I think my first – remember, I'm in Philly. This is a place that booed Santa Claus. Right. I go up not playing well. I get my first day back, I walk up, I get a standing O. And it took every bone in my body and muscle in my face to not cry when I got to the plate. Like, it was it was overwhelming. And for that, I'll never forget. I'll never forget Philly. Philly will always have a uh, special place because of how they handled that situation. I sucked. I really did at that point. I wasn't playing well, dealing with everything because i knew at that point it was a build-up from like his birthday may 9th till that point he took a, a downward spin and so i was dealing with that clearly i wasn't the type that used that type of emotion to be a, I like i was i couldn't handle it i was i was messed up about it so to get that ovation was um was special how do you know that that's the end of your playing career and that i'm all right with this I mean, when you break your arm throwing a baseball. <laughs> and the, the cold part is, you know, I always thought it would end like that, too. The cold part is I had started to really figure out what I needed to do to be consistent at the big league level. Been working with, was working with Joe Dillon, who was the hitting coach at that time. He had really kind of opened my mind to some different things. And at that point, you're more receptive, right? You've done the same thing over and over. It'd be, it's insanity to keep doing that and expect a different result. So I got in that point. And I was pretty. I was positive. I was getting ready to get called up at the end of the year. I started swinging the bat really well. Um, feel, we're in Rochester, New York. Feel the ball throwing in. My arm feels terrible. And all I'm thinking about at this point is, okay, how can I get through this inning just so I can get in there and get it taped or something? And it got to the point where I was like, if they hit this ball to me, I cannot throw it. So I just had to pull myself out the game. It was like maybe the fifth, the last game of the season. Um, I go home, I have surgery, I have some screws and a plate put in there and start the rehab process, and I'm just like, I don't know if I want to do this again. And from that point, and really, honestly, it started after my dad passed. Like, 
it became work to me. And it had never, I don't care what the work was, how much hitting I needed to do, how much work. I loved it. Once he passed, it started to become work, and I didn't want to cheat the game like that. One of the other things that you did post-playing career before you started with the different broadcasting work that you do now? I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. It was really about the opportunity, if I was going to get the opportunity. And you never know. Um, I did some auditions for Fox, you know, didn't hear back. Um, I had originally talked to Padres. At that point, they didn't seem to be interested. So uh, I was getting ready to give it just go try to play another year. And uh, I got a – John Boggs, my agent, got a call from, um, from the Dodgers. Um, and – I was like, let's do it. You know, I, I get to be close to the game. The Dodgers were great to me as a as a player, and now they're giving me another opportunity to, to start my second career. I, 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 it was a perfect fit. How, how natural of a transition was it for you? Like, once you got going, did it, did it feel? It was, it was pretty natural. Okay. It was pretty natural. I, I, I always felt comfortable in front of a mic when I had to do interviews. It wasn't when I had to do television. And I've been doing it since I was 10 years old. So it wasn't something that was uh, foreign to me. Yeah. Um, the technique of it was foreign. I had to kind of go to work on that. You know, it's not always easy when a camera's in your face and you gotta you got to adjust to the other camera shot, too, without being awkward. Like, that stuff, yeah. nobody, you don't think about when you're watching it, but it's not it's not all that easy. It's not it's not natural. So um, that part was a little bit difficult, but the, the actual transition was, was relatively easy. Let me end with this. In what ways do you still hear your dad's voice, or do you still feel his presence? Oh, man, there's different ways almost every day. Like, um something will land on 19 like it, it's 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 almost eerie like as often as it happens um i know my dad's around i have four children i had three girls while my dad was here um i don't think i have a boy after a fourth try if he's here it's almost like he kind of he kind of had the helping hand in that um i say things certain specific words that even when I hear it, I'm like, ooh, that's that's dead on <laughs> That's dead on him. So he's he's around in so many different ways. I'm reminded of him all the time. Yeah. All right, Tony. This is awesome. This was amazing. You were very generous with your time. Uh, thank you. This is no awesome. No problem. It's my pleasure, Josh. That's Tony Gwynn, Jr., and this is Life Around the Seams.